Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, I guys didn't. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to artist and forager Flora Arbuthnot about natural dyes. This was recorded online and for a reason that I can't actually explain, there are a few distracting sort of audio farts peppered throughout this conversation I think caused by the recording equipment um, but hopefully they're not too distracting from all the amazingly brilliant and insightful things that Flora has got to say. I started by asking Flora how she first got interested in natural dyeing. So my mother is a printmaker so uh-huh. I grew up around textiles um, so she was always doing screen printing when I was a child and she taught me how to do screen printing so from very early on it was a, my first craft and mm. um, I've continued throughout my life. And then I went on to art school to study product design and I had a general interest in materials and design, and art, illustration. Um, um, and I had I grew up rurally in the countryside and had a had an appreciation for the natural environment, but didn't really realize it, mm. how important it was to me until I went to art school in Glasgow, which is a very urban environment and, and um, started to feel something was missing Mm. um and we were learning about design but it was very much from a quite a very intellectual and human-centered perspective uh, with materials that were coming already quite very highly processed materials so um wood that was already processed into planks Mm. and plastic and sheets or in already very highly processed materials and I felt I felt a disconnect and I felt it both in myself in my life in the urban life there mm. and also disconnecting working with these materials and that of, of where they came from and the story of those mm. and um, I, I learned about permaculture and that was a real light bulb moment because it's a design methodology about um, integration with natural systems and cycles and um I 
And so when I was a student, I was starting to try and figure out how to integrate that into my work and um, within an environment where it was seen to be innovative to to be to have a human centered perspective, but it the you know the other other natural world was was not considered. Mm. And um, so I left when I left art school, I started working in service design and uh, because that was the industry I'd been prepared for, but I was continued to be not satisfied and not really know how have the pieces to kind of integrate this other interest I had in in the wider natural world. Uh, and eventually I uh, I yeah, I, was, I started growing and growing, growing vegetables and plants. And, and then I came to learn about natural dyeing, which I hadn't even really heard about. I hadn't, I'd been doing printmaking, hmm. still been doing printmaking, but I hadn't known about natural dyeing. And it was just an immediate, I just immediately thought, could see how it brought together all of my interests into one practice in yeah. terms of my fascination with plants growing and foraging um as well as my interest in visual art and design and um I like to have a practice that's very varied so I love um with natural dyeing that I that my practice involves both growing foraging processing plants um making dyes making inks printing dyeing preparing flowers there's a very different many different activities involved that I enjoy that that varied aspects and also the chemistry I I studied chemistry for A-level and I've always really enjoyed um, chemistry so that I enjoy how it brings in the the science as well as the art. Um, I also become increasingly on this journey all this increasingly interested in what does it mean to be the questions around what does it mean to be human Hmm. and the history of humankind and um I'm fascinated by the the um that I'm fascinated that you know there's the history of humankind we spent over 200,000 years living as hunter-gatherers mm. and only 10 to 15,000 years as settled farming people and um and then in terms of the history of crafts and natural dyes it's only been the past 200 years that we've started using industrially industrially processed materials right so um and i'm interested in you know, that you know how we have how we, the kind of lives that we have uh, we are adapted to live and how we've kind of turned away from those lives and now we live much more um modern lives that don't necessarily meet those wild parts of ourselves and will deny certain parts of ourselves, wild parts of ourselves. And so I'm interested, I have been exploring practices that can integrate those parts of ourselves that we have denied back into our, welcome those parts back in. And for me, that's mostly through my connection with plants and crafts. Um, also practices like tracking and um, hunting and um, bird language as well so and I um, spent some time I went out to visit the the San Bushman in the in the in the Kalahari Desert and they are a great inspiration to me in terms of a um, how we can as humans in this time um 
reconnect with uh, what it means to be human in an ancient way that may be more fulfilling in some ways and more connected with the natural world amazing there's so much to unpack from what you've just said um it would be good i think to start with to discuss kind of what we mean by natural dyes um so sort of the materials and the processes that you work with yeah so um so practically speaking i have fibers that i work with so those mm -hmm. are either uh, plant-based fibers so usually the linen or cotton or um or paper that's made of other cellulose fibers um tree fibers or cotton fibers then i tend to yeah i tend to group those as cellulose fibers mm -hmm. and then i also work with animal-based fibers so that tends to be wool or silk and those tend to be made of protein so they respond differently um so mm. yeah those are those are the the materials that i'm applying the color to and then I'm also working, then I'm working with the plants that I'm creating the colour from. And those are either um, wild plants that I find locally or plants that um, have been specifically bred for dyeing. So right. over the past few thousand years, they've been like vegetables have been specifically bred for eating. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then I also use um, certain chemicals uh, to to either brighten the colors, make the colors more stable, or modify the colors, or assist in the process in the processes in other ways, and these tend to be the metal salts mm. or um, pH shifters, so acids or alkalis, um, and some of those have natural are uh, naturally derived, so some of them I can I can directly source those from plants. Mm -hmm. Whereas others, I, I have used synthesized chemi chemicals yeah. that um, are essentially white powders. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what, what are some of the plants that we might have heard of that can produce dyes that you use? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the obvious place to start is the kitchen. I suppose. <laughs> um, so we have you know, onion skins and... Um, avocado skins and pips that so onion skins give orange and avocado skins give pink oh really and there are also plants in the kitchen that people may think of as dye plants that are actually not dye plants because they're not stable like, like berries and mm. um turmeric isn't stable as a dye oh really any kind of fruits beetroots they mm. don't really work very well so and there's also garden plants like rose roses or marigolds um it's tree barks like apple bark or pear bark or acorns, oak galls. So there's a wide variety of different types of plant materials from roots to barks to flowers and leaves. Amazing. And is it, are you after kind of certain pigments? I suppose it is pigments, isn't it? But what, what are the kind of substances that you're trying to get out of those materials? I'm not a, I'm not a, chemist yep. although I have a basic understanding of chemistry so um so I can't give detail in that yeah, way yeah. but um yeah so there are different pigments or chemicals or acids mm. that we can get from different plants so with madder let's say which is a plant which is traditionally created the roots are traditionally used for a red um 
we're extracting a chemical called alzarin from the mm -hmm. roots and it's very specific in terms of like the alzarin is only released if the if the roots are heated up between 60 and 80 degrees okay so it's a very specific extraction you can even cold extract some matter multiple times to wash it before heating it up to that temperature just to get the pure alzarin mm. and then um many plants give tannic acid which is a fantastic um dye dye um which can either be used as a as a fixative for other dyes and also can be used in combination with iron for to create black and gray oh, right. um those are a couple of examples um and then also there's indigo which is a pigment that's extracted from various different plants all mm -hmm. around the world so indigo is the blue pigment but what's intriguing about indigo is that there's many different plants that have contained the potential to uh, produce indigo and all those those plants aren't related to each other okay so there's in the uk we have uh woad which is in the cabbage family and then we have japanese indigo which is um which is a pus carrier so that's uh not weed mm. um and then we have indigo ferrotinctoria which is grown in um asia and that and africa and that is a legume but all the plant those different plants are all used to produce indigo mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, the listeners won't be able to see you on screen, but I can see that you're sitting in, is it your studio? Um, with lots yeah. of different plants behind you and a lovely kind of colour chart directly behind where you're sitting with all sorts of different colours on it. It's amazing the kind of the oh, yeah. range that is possible. Yeah, that chart is only made with about four plants. Oh, really? And there's about, what, 15, 20 different colours produced yeah so yeah so that's they're shifted by mixing so often i use so green is the most difficult color to produce because chlorophyll that is green in nature yeah. is um ultimately unstable it's a living cell oh, so okay yeah of course. that's why in the autumn all the green dies mm. and we end up with browns which is the most common color to get mm. dying so to create a stable green we have i combine a yellow and a blue mm -hmm. So, um, so I create yeah the greens on that chart are created through combining indigo with weld, and then the colours are shifted with pH. So shifting it whether it's acids tend to make the colours paler, mm. and then alkalis make them darker, and then yeah, adding iron oxide tends to make blacken or make colours more grey. And then I, you can also dilute the colours with a with a um, solvent to make them lighter or mm. paler. They are surprisingly vibrant, though. I had an assumption that natural dyes would be quite sort of muted colours, but there are some really bright yeah. ones on there. Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of my mission, really, my work, mm. is to demonstrate how it's possible to create colours, natural colours that can be as vibrant as synthetic dyes mm. and um I think that's a really important part of my work because I because people have a lot of assumptions with natural dyes being mm. all beige and brown <laughs> yeah. and muted and um yeah I know it, it as if before the 1800s everyone was just it, everything was just beige yep. which isn't true there was a huge 
many very vibrant colors that we used yeah and the colors had more stories to them and meaning and significance mm. whereas now it's less so somehow yeah made in factories um actually that brings me really nicely onto the next question that i had for you which was sort of about I'm interested in what the significance of natural dyeing is compared to synthetic dyes. You kind of hinted at it there that there's a much more, a much richer history, um, and a bit more, a bit more of a story behind the materials as opposed to the synthetic side, which is much more modern and tends to be created in, I suppose, laboratories and chemical factories. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose to you, sort of what's the significance of natural dyeing? Um. Yeah, so for me, the significance is, yeah, it's about the story. It's about the connection with the plants the and the um, the honesty of it, of, of working with those raw materials, growing them or foraging them, meeting them in where they live mm. and working with them to create these colours and... Um, creating colors that yeah have a story to them and have and are enduring in the way that um i generally like to teach and often rather than doing commissions and often if people when people approach me to do commissions i do the commissions with them mm. because i because for me just the object isn't as interesting and it's not as rewarding as as to have the relationship with how it's been created and um so I'm, I'm not so interested in just providing a finished product it's about mm. um bringing people along in the in the experience of that and then of that of that process and then creating the object at the end which then will be so much more enduring because mm. the person who it, is living with that piece of fabric or um will person who's living with that piece of fabric or piece of clothing has a deeper, much deeper relationship with it mm. and is much more likely to take care of it, to repair it, to, to share it to, and has a story to tell about it. And it's a much deeper relationship mm. to than um, if something, someone's just bought something or um, from a shop or, yeah. and only has it, only appreciates it for the, um, for the, just the visual aesthetic. Yeah. But which without any kind of understanding of the story of why that is yeah. and what that's about. I suppose I'm curious about how you mentioned about sort of reconnecting with the natural world um, as a way of potentially getting back to what it means to be human. Um, but how, how does your process sort of reflect, reflect that change? Um. Yeah, so it's a big question. I mean, what does it mean to be human? And I imagine, I expect that everyone has their own journey around that question. Mm. And that's kind of based on you know, what, and we all have our own relationship with that. So I don't, I don't, um, so so what I share is, is kind of my own personal perspective rather yeah. than creating any big proclamations. <laughs> but um for me, there's something of being part of of to be being human is to be a part of the 
of the natural cycles of of life mm. of all life um and and finding a way back to being rather than doing and to be and because i see that the culture we we have created is a, is creates meaning through what we do rather than just being mm. a human being so i found that through practices such as well particularly foraging mm. being in the seasons and um, creating a cycle finding my own cycle where I live of locally available plants that I work with that I migrate to throughout mm. this year and that's you know, maybe like in maybe that in um, in June I always go to a particular lime tree to harvest the flowers that only have flat flowers for a week every year and I yeah. have a specific journey to that to the, that tree that I return to or um and in it's like August to September I go and forage for mushrooms in the woods that I pretty much only go to at that time of year and it's so it's a very specific mm. seasonal cycle and relate but it creates a certain relationship with place that's um which which with the places which becomes full of stories and mm. full of um um I feel it makes it, it makes me feel a sense of belonging and connection with place and there's also something of that state of mind of being while in those kind of practices mm. which um feels very ancient to me and very deeply fulfilling mm. um and grounding um so um so yeah, like in the like when the acorns and the oak galls start to start to come down and going out to collect them and that feeling of I must go and get my year's supply and yeah. going out and collecting them and um, all that I encounter in through that, that practice, um, which I find. I mean, yeah, just the, the idea that you know, people have been foraging and working with oak for thousands of thousands and thousands of years mm. and to find my relationship with that and that connects me with a ancient lineage of of people and um uh also yeah gives me a sense of place and connection with my with my home and mm. um and then I notice that you know I, I bit the, when I live somewhere I build up that local it's a bit like you know when you live somewhere for a while you start to get to know loads of people in your local yeah, area and yeah. you start to feel at home it's like developing that but with the land and with the plants that that live there yeah and meeting them in this in in the specific seasons that where they have mm. their gifts to offer and working with them where do you live oh I live in South Devon okay so nice yeah it doesn't sound like you live in a city I was gonna say I'm in central London so when you were describing yeah, all of well, that I was like ah oh, the natural world I miss it so much <laughs> well yeah I did live in the city for 10 in cities for 10 years yeah. I lived in Glasgow and then London and then Bristol and mm. I think it's it's cities can be very abundant mm. for 
for dye plants it's amazing I mean I've you know there's buddleia and oak and Mm. many in the parks there are many different interesting plants and opportunities for foraging yeah um so I don't think it's a practice that's exclusive to Mm. the countryside yeah and actually I find there's something of when I lived in the city I was actually much more dedicated to my practice in this way because I had to be in order to be feel okay yeah whereas now I've noticed since living in the countryside I've come become less dedicated to it because I don't Mm. I don't rely on it in order to yeah in order to feel connected to the place because I I don't need to go foraging in order to Mm -hmm. be in the countryside um I was amazed in in Bristol at how um all those little wild edges and kind of forgotten places and I remember there being this um little back alley where there was just lines and lines of roses that really just someone had planted but (laughs) it was completely forgotten place and I'd go go every June and pick the rose petals (laughs) and there'd never be anyone else there and it was kind of like it's kind of satisfying kind of cycling around with my basket in a city and Mm. having that kind of Connect, finding those little places and having that connection. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In a way, it feels kind of subversive almost, doesn't it? Like, I don't know. Cities are so built up of, I mean, I live in very central London, so... You know, there's so much concrete, so much glass, so much brick, so many hard surfaces. Um, and like you say, you, you do have these areas where kind of nature is able to grow and thrive. Um, but it almost feels like it shouldn't. It's sort of like, you know, the nature is kind of reclaiming its ground. Um, and there's something as well about city living that you have to pay for everything, you know, in London, you have to pay to get around. You have to pay really expensive rent. Everything comes at a cost. Whereas what you're describing is completely free. I mean, yeah, you're not. Yeah. 
yeah well absolutely that's a part of yeah that's a part of it is that it's yeah. um it's empowering in a way that it's about finding how can we access the materials that we need yeah. to have without just through knowledge and, and wisdom and yeah. not th- through commercial purposes mm. and it's and there's there's that part and it's also about bringing that knowledge back into the commons because it used to yeah. be common knowledge you know how to do natural dyeing how to create herbal medicines mm. you know how to um how to weave how to sew these yeah. would have been all just skills everyone would have had and now they've kind of they've been lost mm. and and there's also quite a, in some areas there's some quite a bit of secret se- secretiveness around those industries and yeah. wanting them to, want people wanting to keep those as um, specialist knowledge rather than common knowledge. Mm. And um, yeah, I I'm I'm yeah I've been really enjoying through through the internet through online through online communities mm. creating a commons a culture of bringing natural dyes inks paints back into the commons and um how empowering it it is for people to um to be able to yeah access that Mm. and particularly with this year this past year you know when all those those kind of no experiences that we can't do and have anymore because they are um kind of banned yeah but we, you know, we're still allowed to go out and go for walks and to mm. um experience plants and trees and and there's yeah there's been a big there's a big opportunity there to um reconnect yeah for sure with that and I guess we talked a lot about plants and yeah. about um foraging and I wonder whether um it'd be worth talking more about the processes yeah that'd be great processes involved in yeah so maybe you could take me through um an example process you know from start to finish from from stepping out of your front door to having the final product okay yeah so um and there are so many different processes yeah (laughs) and the more the years go by every few months I'm learning a different process so it's and it's kind of infinite in that way and there are um it's like there are so many different plants but there's also so many different ways of working with those Mm. it's kind of endless which is quite enticing about it um but I will yeah I'll take you through a a a simple approach and I like to teach in a way which is teaching quite sort of generic processes Mm. that then you can interchange whatever plants are local to you into the process so that um so it's about it's not just about going and finding a specific plot. Mm. So, um, um, yeah, so in terms of dyeing, which is, I mean, I make dyes, inks and paints. They'll have slightly different processes, but ultimately I tend to go out and I'll find a, a I'll look, depends on the time of year. So this time mm. of year, um, there's, doesn't look like there's much available. Um, but it's a fantastic time of year for harvesting tree barks mm. from now until March because this time of year it's the the sap is just starting to rise from the roots up into the tree into the to the leaves of the trees again. So that so the energy of the of the trees is starting to move into the bark of the mm. tree as it rises. 
So um, there are many trees that you can, so this time of year I harvest apple bark and pear bark, alder bark. Um, often from fruit trees, you can just go out and find people who are pruning their trees mm. already. And so you're just taking the bark from prunings rather than taking it from mm. live trees. That's a bit, it can be a bit harsh. So mm. um, yeah, so I go to a local orchard and find and ask for from the from the people managing the orchard the prunings and I strip the bark, scrape the bark from the um, from the branches and um, you can tell with bark if you scrape some off and you look at the under layer of the bark the inner bark mm. and it may look pale but after about ten five minutes to half an hour that um, bark the inner bark will oxidize and you'll see it'll go darker and it may turn pink or orange or yellow and no you'll way. see basically what color it will give that's cool. so that's a good way of testing and then if it's a good bark I'll just scrape you know, strip as much bark as I as I have mm -hmm. and then um I'll take that bark and then I put it in a bucket of a pan I put it in a pan of water I use stainless steel pans so it's not reactive mm. and I um simmer that bark for couple of hours and often I'll steep it for if I sometimes I'll steep it for months but mm. I could just steep it overnight and then I remove the bark from that liquid and that I use that liquid as my dye so that's a dye and that's a kind of base which you can then use just to submerge fabric in to mm. dye or you can um, add certain ingredients which um, settles the pigment so you can make paints with the pigment oh, or okay. you can evaporate the dye down to make an ink um or you can you can concentrate it down and um mix it with a binder as a, a printing with so there's many different ways you can then use that extracted water-based mm. dye um so but i mean i often you do they just dye fabric but mm. um I, I'll, I'll usually pre-mordant the fabric so i use um uh, my one of my favourite mordants is a plant called Simplocus, which isn't actually available in the UK. It's a plant that grows in south in Southeast Asia, mm. and um, it's an interesting plant because it's the world's most powerful bioaccumulator in aluminium. So the leaves contain three percent aluminium. No way. So I I and it's been used as a mordant for mm. thousands of years. So I um I so I yeah I I buy the leaf the Morton Plocus leaves and I boil them up and extract the the like so extract mm. the kind of the the aluminium from yeah. the leaves and then steep my fabric in that liquid before dyeing my fabric with let's say the apple mm. bark dye and that will give me a much brighter color um, but you can also use aluminium sulfate which you can just buy from from the chemist and that's um much cheaper and quicker but I've when I started out I was very strict about just using plants, yeah so I, it's much less romantic if you just buy it off the internet <laughs> yeah yeah um so do you do you do anything with your fabrics after that point do you make sort of clothes and products or are you do you just stop at the fabric stage um yeah I just I mean I've been just so focused on making plant dyes yeah. that I I just just focus on application surface application mm -hmm. 
um, rather than sewing or yeah, um, yeah. knitting or other extra processes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then, and I'm kind of increasingly exploring, yeah, different applications like painting on fabric and printing on fabric. Mm. But um, yeah, definitely for me, it definitely feels like my focus is the plants and the processes for yeah. getting the plant, applying the plants to the fabric rather than working with the fabric itself. I'm pretty incompetent at sewing, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a completely different skill set from what you've been describing so yeah. far. So, yeah. yeah, it's fair enough to to concentrate on the kind of alchemy of it um, rather than the end products. Do you have any tips for people who want to kind of get into this or learn a bit more about it? How can people get started with foraging? If you, if you can go find somebody locally to you who's knowledgeable to take you out, I find mm. the best way to learn is through being directly shown something, yeah. particularly when you start out, because it's quite intimidating. There's mm. you know, that wall of green. It's just it's hard <laughs> to penetrate it, yeah. first of all, um, until you can start to differentiate different families of plants to be able to um, differentiate. Otherwise... Mm. I would say to go out with curiosity and meet what is there rather than going out to look for something in particular. Mm, okay. And that's a really important part of the practice is to be open to meeting what is there and to and curious to find out what what that what that particular plant and, and notice what you're drawn to and mm. to go with that and connect with and to give space to that. Because I think it's it's a kind of abundance perspective. I see it as an mm. abundance perspective. If you can go out with aware, open awareness to be able to meet what is there, then there's always something there to learn mm. and to connect with. But if you go out looking for something in particular, you can spend all day <laughs> hunting and feel quite dissatisfied and kind of yeah. a bit lost. Like, mm. um, oh, that's such a good metaphor for life. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. Go on. No, it's true. Yeah, as I just finished. Yeah, <laughs> that's it is. And I think it's and I find it helpful going out foraging with that kind of practice just for foraging, because it actually kind of then starts to seep into other parts of my mm. life. Like I like the seasonality of the practice, like of working with plants different times of year. And then I start to recognize the seasonality of other parts of my practice, mm. like um, noticing that in the winter there's not much else going on so I just I do a lot of research in my studio um and in the in the in in the spring then as a growing I'm starting to grow dye plants and um so working mostly with plants Mm. and in the summer there's a lot of harvesting of flowers and teaching Mm. and then in the autumn it's the mushrooms and um, yeah, because I, I think there's both a kind of um, what's happening out in the world and with the plants, and mm. there's also like what what is going on internally, and there's kind of a it's it's all it's what am I I'm not being very articulate with what I mean, but I mean it's all connected. So yeah. there's a um, and there's a and it's very different to the um, to the way that with normal kind of kind of design design process I was taught at you know, art school a very um, linear design process mm. where actually with these crafts and work with the seasons it's actually a cyclic and seasonal process mm. that's not linear and um, 
goes around with the cycle of the moon as well as the cycle of the sun in the and um and working with the plants that are available at that time mm. or um yeah and it's much more complex in those ways but I find much more interesting mm. yeah yeah it sounds so it sounds like such a concept that so many of us have I think forgotten or lost track of um is this um connection to the to the natural world and the outside world um particularly those of us that live in cities you know you're so kind of blinkered to it physically you can barely see the sky sometimes because there's such tall buildings around um you know central heating not going outdoors hard materials around you so you don't actually access the the greenery itself um and what you were describing about the kind of cyclic nature of it and kind of tapping into that um, is something that I think a lot of listeners will relate to wanting to to tap into. Um, mm. And so that's why I was interested in kind of how we can start to notice mm. um, and to kind of get a bit more back out there, if that makes sense. Um, and you're right, this year, that is pretty much the only thing we've been able to do reliably is to be able to go outdoors um and and try and find that sort of stuff um can you are there any sort of good books on on this sort of stuff or sort of other resources yeah so i mean yeah so my practices are i've taken it from many different mm. i'm looking at many different areas so um yeah i can recommend a few books that that um are that I think speak to those areas. Yeah. There's so Jenny Dean, who is a natural dyer um, from Sussex, mm-hmm. wrote a book called um, Wild Colours. And that's um, a really fantastic book for starting out with natural dyeing because it has a lot of information about the plants and a lot of the plants are plants that you can grow mm. in the UK, or they're already garden plants that you will um, be able to find where you live. And it has a very clear recipes and nice. um, color swatches. Cool. And then in terms of foraging, I well, I originally learned foraging from a forager called Fiona Campbell, who um, who's a forager based in Devon. And she wrote a book called The Hunter Gatherer Way, mm. which is all about reimagining the the migratory cycle of how humans would have lived in the UK as hunter gatherers and where they would have lived at different times of year and the plants they would have eaten different Mm. times of year. So it's not about dying specifically, but it's been very influential to me, her way of working um, with food. But I've looked at that in terms of dyes Mm. as well. Oh, great. I'm definitely going to check those out. Um, So if people have enjoyed hearing from you and they want to kind of look up your stuff, what you're up to and the the things that you've been describing and making, um, where are you online where they can find you? Um, Yeah, so I have a website which is called plantsandcolour.co.uk and I'm also quite active on Instagram, which um, I'm plants underscore and underscore colour. Cool. Um, So yeah, those are the best places to find me online amazing well thank you so much for doing this it's been so fascinating to talk to you I actually did have I've got one experience of natural dyeing um which is I took took part in a masterclass um one afternoon um 
where I used to work at the Institute of Making. And I'm going to hold up this to the camera so that you can see it. It's like a little pink square, which I think must have been... Did you say avocado was pink? Um, yeah. Yeah, so I dyed this wool and then knitted it up into a little coaster. <laughs> um, That's sweet. It looks like it's got little flecks of blue in it as well. Yeah, as we tie-dyed it. So so the blue is kind mm. of the un, the undyed stuff um, and the pink was the dyed stuff. Um, but yeah, it's mm. a magical transformation. And um, like you say, actually quite empowering to tap into all of these kind of untapped resources that you would think you know, normally you just throw all that onion skins and, you know, um, kitchen debris away into the bin. Um, so there is something very special about harvesting that and using it for good. Um, so thank you so much for telling me about your practice. Um, it's been great and I hope we can t keep in touch and I'm looking forward to seeing all your next adventures. Ah, thanks, Anna. Thanks for um, yeah, organising this. It's been great to chat with you. So that was the fantastic Flora Arbuthnot. Thanks so much to her for coming on the podcast and definitely check out her stuff online. It's truly beautiful. That's everything for this week. As always, it would be awesome if you could like and subscribe to the podcast so as not to miss out on future episodes. If you want to support us financially with a one-time donation, you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. Thanks so much to everyone who has already done that, which really does help to keep us going. Say hi on social media. On Twitter, we're at Realtalk, that's R-I-A-L talk, and on Instagram at handmadepod. Huge thanks as always to Dave Shepard for our cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next week, I'll be talking to guitar maker Tom Sands about wood. So until then, take very good care and I look forward to chatting to you next week on Handmade. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.